This is Sea Stories. Lives touched by the sea. Hello and welcome to Sea Stories. I'm John Murphy. I think that's one of our helpers, actually. Oh, yeah. We had two Americans. You, you need uh, four people. Oh, do you? You're all, yeah. you, you need five people plus five the people pilot. Five people plus yeah. the pilot, yeah. Driver, four line handers. And, and so an American couple who worked... In today's Sea Story, I'm meeting with sailing couple Emer Brady and John Heron. Emer and John set off from Dunleary in 1996 on a passage that was planned to take three months. The Pacific. It's a training chart, isn't it? This is the pa- Panama. Oh, sorry, is it Galapagos? That's Galapagos. Oh, that's Galapagos. Yeah. Marquesas. 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 That three months turned into seven years. So, what led to their decision? And what does it take? And how did Ireland change in the intervening years? And in the end, how have they changed when they returned home after seven years on a boat together? This is Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea, a radio documentary series for East Coast FM. I remember uh, actually Johnny commenting at one stage that um, to not, you know, it would be a great advantage to not have a fantastic imagination when you're sailing because you then wouldn't get fearful. And I must say, I certainly made a very conscious decision not to read anything about sailing or you know books about other people's passages or watch films like the perfect storm or anything like or that those, those, those books about the the family who lived for 16 years on a life raft or and i did make a deliberate decision to do mm. that because there was enough uncertainty there already and Johnny was by far a much more accomplished sailor than I was, though interestingly I was the one with the qualifications on paper, having done the Coastal Skipper with David Gerard and the uh, HF radio course. I was the radio officer. In the early days when we got together, we'd spend our holidays walking the mountain ranges of Europe. Yeah. And... Um, A failed walking holiday in Greece was how we got into sailing and and I suppose it's my own Mm. fault that we ended up away for seven years on a boat because um, this this walking holiday didn't work out and we decided how about next year rather than going on a a walking holiday would we try, you know, chartering a yacht summer. You know how to sail and uh, that's really what we did and we did that a number of times, twice a year we charter boat in Greece or Turkey and then eventually we decided, you know what why don't we buy a boat when we bought a boat here in Ireland and of course like it was chalk and cheese sailing in Greece and sailing in Ireland oh, yeah. you know? You're listening to Sea Stories Lives Touched by the Sea In 90, around 95, 96 the, the opportunity suddenly presented itself where somebody wanted to buy my business my parents had died which it's not a jolly thing, but it does make it easier. And Emer, uh, Emer's mother was still working, young enough to look after herself. And I suddenly thought, you know, we could do this. I had I had been a career person and background in marketing management, worked for Guinness as a senior brand manager. Um, but I had also always <clears throat> taught on a part-time basis. I was a part-time faculty member of the Irish Management Institute and had left Guinness and went back and studied full-time to get an MBA and did a year's research work with them 
um, and finally managed to get a full-time faculty posi- position in the Irish Management Institute, was only there six, seven months when Johnny dropped the bombshell. Uh, we had a boat, and I said to him, uh, we had a 38-foot Olsen. Um, not a great boat for long-term cruising, it's too small. But um, I said, you know, I, I, I've sold the business, so I'm going to go around to Ireland in the boat, and I'm going to buy a mobile phone and a suitcase and get crew that way. And uh, on the other hand, if you're coming, if you're going to quit the job and come, I'll upgrade the boat, and we'll just head south and see what happens. So, so what was the business that you were able to be that? I, uh, I started a business in 1975 making fiberglass storage tanks for the pharmaceutical and chemical industry. Okay. And gradually built it up. I extended the factory in the late 80s. And in around about 1995, this Cork guy came and said, would you like to sell it, John? And I said, oh, don't be stupid, and then sold it to him about a year later. Not, not, for, not, a, not for a fortune, but he was going to take the staff, he was going to rent my premises, he was going to give me about the price of a good boat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was there much planning involved before you left, or did you make I, it up I'd as you went along? I planned going around the world about 2,000 times, I should think, in my head, and I read the books. And Is that typical for other circumnavigators you've met? Like, they, they, they bought Slocum, they bought the Hiscox, and, and that happened. they all have. They all ha- have those books. And well, I suppose Cornell. And Jimmy Cornell. Jimmy Cornell, Cornell yeah. Yeah. World cruising routes, you yeah, know, which, which is the Bible. Yeah. Which is, which the, is Bible. the Bible yeah. in terms of where you ought to be or, or ought not to be at any given time anywhere in the world. I could stay at home and work really hard. Johnny could be off sailing around Ireland having a good time. And um, I think after a while I, I decided, you know what, let's give this a go because I, I felt certain that I could get back to the management training and development in some shape or form, or at the very least be associate faculty again. Um, had they given me the three, year, three, three months a year of ap- leave of absence, I actually probably would have gone back to the job, and, and the story would have turned out quite different than it did. Um, as it is, we, we went away for three months and we got home seven years later. <laughs> This is Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea, a radio documentary series for East Coast FM. In New Zealand, Emer said to me, look, you know, why are we rushing? It's, we've done half the world in a year and a half. Why don't we spend another year in the Pacific? Because I, I had a, my plan showed us getting home after three, three and a half years. And I mean, a nod's as good as a wink. So we ended up taking five years in our circumnavigation and then going on sailing for another two years after that. But we, we did spend another year in the Pacific and then quite a while going up East Coast, Australia, stuff. I'd say the we spent... Um, when you get into the Pacific, you need to spend uh, six or seven months out of the hurricane area. And so people go to typically go to New Zealand or Australia and we spent our our first hurricane season in the Pacific in New Zealand which was fantastic. We bought a camper van and um, 
uh, circumnavigated both islands and went down to Stuart Island. And in, in the camper van, not yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, in in in, in the camper van, and it was fantastic. And it was also the first time that we went home to Dublin. Um, so we were a year and a half gone before anybody saw us at all. And then the next season, we uh, we went up to Fiji, Vanuatu, and New Caledonia. And our plan had been to go to the east coast of Australia, but when we got to New Caledonia, we liked it so much. It's a French colony, and um, by comparison with other islands in the Pacific, uh, is good from the point of view of food and wine, and not limited in the way the others are. So we spent the next hurricane season there, learned French, and 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 got involved in the local community. But we were the only English-speaking boat there for six months, so uh, it was a great opportunity, and that was a highlight. That was personally a highlight for me. So okay, so there's two of you on the endless oceans all around. You're essentially two people living in a boat 24-7. Most couples would never imagine spending so much time together. I suppose it depends on, on, on what aspect of the circumnavigation you're talking about. If we're talking about a passage, in reality you probably see, being only two people on board, in reality you see less of each other than you might otherwise. Yeah. Because when one person is on watch, the other person is asleep. Uh, you know, through the night and during the day, one person is on lookout uh, while the other person is either cooking down below or carrying out maintenance or on the radio or checking out what the weather is. So you don't actually see a, a huge amount of each other on a passage when you're only two on board. And your whole perception of time changes, doesn't it, on a trip like that? It does absolutely. I mean, because I suppose one of the one of I mean, there are a number of different things that are are, are changing. Um, we were going west, uh, so each day the moon was coming up, and nearly an hour later, fifty minutes later every day, you're in effect changing time zones uh, on a regular basis. Though we always kept our our uh, ship's clock on, on UTC or Zulu as, as they refer to um, the sense of timing it's, it's kind of all over the place because you're only having snippets of time where you're up or where you're asleep uh, and you're really responding to the, the given moment that you find yourself in and you're disconnected from the pressures and emails and the phone calls from day to day life at home Yes, but then I suppose, you know, John, like we're talking about, we set out in 96. Email was only something that, you know, in its infancy at that stage. Yes. It actually took us until uh, 1997 when we were in Fiji before we got sorted with our first email address. And, uh, you know, even at that stage, we didn't have email on board per se. We, we were having to rely on going ashore and finding internet cafes yeah. and all, all that that involved. There are still debates in the yachting press, the magazines, you know, for people planning to do transatlantic. So talking about, oh, do you need SSB? Do you need uh, Inmarsat phone? Is Inmarsat replacing SSB? And I think the truth of the matter is, if you have SSB, all the better because you communicate with your with your neighbours, your exactly. your two hundred mile away neighbours, whatever. Right? We talked from uh, Venezuela right across Central America to another Irish boat that was in the Galapagos which I don't know was it about 1500 miles away something but right like across that. Central America into into there and, and that was to another boat yeah. uh, I, I would still say that the radio is still the best source of information for you oh, if you yeah. can keep in touch with the people who are just ahead of you 
oh, all yeah. the time. Or when you come into port somewhere and, you know, your, your sundowners became, you know, just the norm and you have people, you know, visit your boat and you trade stories, you're talking about the various things that have happened. And that's where we found out an awful lot of information. For example, when we, when we were setting out from Panama, at mm. that point in time, we didn't think we were allowed to uh, stop off at the Galapagos. Jimmy Cornell has a whole and the official the official story there was you had to write in Spanish three months in advance and you had to have an address where the letter could come back mm. to and you had to write a second time and of course that's not practicable you know when you're when you're it's on a yacht lot. and you're on the move yeah. all the time uh, and we had some boats ahead of us who were saying okay look it's okay you know you're able to come in you can come into Academy Bay and you just you've got an engine problem or you've got a health problem or you know you had some kind of story and they can't put you out to sea and they accepted it because it was good for the economy and yeah. whatever else. That we wouldn't have been able to do without being in contact on the radio. We had um, the Comet Halley Bob going oh, yeah. over us every single night for that whole three-week passage from Galapagos to the Marquesas. And it was the brightest thing in the sky unless the moon was really prominent. And we'd say to somebody, Ian would say something on the radio, what do you think of Halley Bob last night? Halley what? Out of 25 boats, I don't think any of them noticed it, do they? No. Which is extraordinary, really. You're out there and there's a zillion stars in the sky and there's no lights or city smoke or anything in the way and they just didn't see it. The other thing that happened to us is we were passed out by, a, we reckon, about a 1,000 whales, pilot whales, maybe 18, 20 feet long, for about three hours. They were, they were coming the same way as we were. They were doing about nine knots, just three knots faster than we were. And we're in line of 25 boats spread out over 500 miles, but no other boat saw a single wife, which is just a little bit curious. So talk about some of the amazing sights you've seen. That sounds like That's, two of them. Yeah. I mean, they well, sound yeah, like I highlights. Know. What about other things you saw that, that really <laughs> stuck in your memory? Well, I mean, there's, there's all the natural stuff, like uh, Komodo dragons in, in uh, the island of Rinca in Indonesia. And... Uh, orangutans in Borneo or she got bitten by one of them got bitten by one and nearly lost my leg yeah. and I have a great bit of video of, of a, 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 a macaque monkey sitting on Emer's shoulders delousing de de not that you needed it though we no, had to, of course we had I to add that right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was a sign of affection I yeah. thought, um, I've had birds nesting in my hair but <laughs> we're Sailing on. I suppose there, there were. I mean, there were some fantastic skies and sunsets and stuff. But uh, which in my, the video I make, I actually transformed from one uh, continent into the next because the first one was a bit dull, you know. <laughs> so, um, but also the people and, and the, the sailors you meet are, are half of the experience, you know, because you meet some fantastic people. I, I worked for an American company for six years, and I thought they were all pretty low-grade people, the people I worked with. But the sailors are quite different. They're, these are free thinkers and uh, people who have a quite different attitude to life, to corporate claw or uppers, as I call them, you know. And uh, some of those people we're, we're still in touch with now, and uh, that's good. You're listening to Sea Stories, lives touched by the sea. So when you came back to Ireland, right, was it with, uh, with trepidation and was there a period of adjustment or what, did it, what was it like to return? I suppose 
let's say to start with we, we, we completed our navigation circumnavigation. Uh, our circumnavigation five years on and that uh, that was in Menorca because we'd first gone down through Menorca after France yeah. um, and the, the logical thing then would have been to leave the Med and turn upright towards Ireland but we didn't we turned left and went down to the Canaries again um, I, I would have gone home at that stage but Johnny really hadn't hadn't had enough and really wasn't ready to go home it's going to be cold so we crossed we crossed the Atlantic a second time and as you do when you get in from a passage one of the first things you'll do is contact check your email make sure everything's okay at home and everything appeared to be okay but sadly two days after uh, we got in um, I, somebody from another yacht came to me and said look the, there's somebody ashore looking for you somebody's trying to get in contact with you and uh, unfortunately I learned that my, one of my brothers had died suddenly he was only 46 years of age and it was tragic and um, I think that's when I suppose it was the it was really the end for me I mean I'd already spun yeah. it out enough but we had to put the boat to bed get ready go home we went home for a month we came back and we spent one, on another three or four months on board but like my heart wasn't in it and I really felt that I needed to be at home with my mother in particular you came back and everyone looked at you after being away for seven years and despite the tan had, had they noticed any other changes? We lost a few friends because they drifted away and they probably a lot of them become richer than we were and, and, and maybe a bit resentful about what we were doing I don't know I think a lot of people had changed because a lot of people had got caught up in that whole kind of wealth and property and you know and, and, and really like um I, I suppose when we were coming back after the seven years, you know, we thought, OK, well, we'll just slot back in. We're going back in to live in the same house, same area. We'll have the same friends. And the truth is, it, it, like, it didn't, it didn't pan out like that because they had changed. But also, fundamentally, like, our values had changed hugely. You still own a boat? No. No, we don't. Uh, we sold we sold Pala, our westerly ocean lord. Emer and John sold Pala One, their westerly sailing cruiser in Southampton, which I suppose is the best place to sell a boat like that. And for a few years, they didn't have a boat at all. Emer took up a full time degree studying art, and then after a few years, they bought a Halbrook Rassie Thirty Six in Holland and sailed her home to Dunleary. And in the summer holidays, because Emer was at college, they went and cruised the Mediterranean. Eventually, however, they sold Pala 2, which is what they call their Halbe 36, and Emer took up racing. But cruising and racing are a world apart. Cruising and racing are at the opposite ends of, the, of a continuum. And actually, one of the things that I, that I feel strongly about in terms of doing passages is that I'm very glad that I didn't come from a racing background because I think so many racing people expose themselves hugely when they're out on a passage because they haven't thought through the consequences of pushing the equipment to the limit it's not and a question of being deadlines. having deadlines and having deadlines, and deadlines and, and, is another and story yeah. people people who have airplanes to catch and, and, and that type of thing is but you know it's one thing to news. break your equipment a few miles out from Dunleary it's quite another thing mid-ocean yeah. because basically you really need to be hugely resourceful 
have lots of spares. Have lots of spares, but actually resourceful more than anything yeah. else, I think. And, 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 you know, people say, oh, well, you know, people often talk about, well, you know, how qualified were you? How much did you know about sailing before you went? In fact, I think probably my working background was more important in, you know, strategic planning, researching, anticipating what might happen. And having a mental agility that allows you to say, look, we wanted to go to Turkey, but the wind says we should go to Cyprus. And that's exactly what happened to us well, we were several times. changing destination. Yeah. There's no room, really, for management ego projects. That, you need and to. Racing is all about that, and cruising is all about the other, really, isn't it? Yeah. But then cruising sailors bring a skill set that racing skippers appreciate, particularly on offshore passages. I mean, I've met a lot of, quite a few couples who have done uh, either transatlantics or spent time cruising the Caribbean, the Med, and they all say once you do it, you never regret it. Life is for living. I've never met anybody who's actually set out and got any distance who've regretted it. I've met a few people who set out and realised. It wasn't for them. It's not for us. Can't do this. Ian and John have done what few couples have been brave enough to do. They hopped off the busy merry-go-round and availed of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for adventure and discovery. There's an extended version of this program on our website, seastories.ie, where you'll find other programs from this series. I'm John Murphy. Join me next time here on Sea Stories. Next time on Sea Stories. The child actually jumped off the cliff. And the reason he did is because he didn't want to go home and show mummy and daddy his end-of-year exam results. So he was afraid. He had the reports. The report card was found up on the top of the cliff with a school bag. And that's, you know, the thought that a child would actually do that because of something like that, um, especially with my background of not doing very well in my leaving cert, um, add that into it, it, it's just always taught me a lesson. Yes. My kids, I'll always bring forward about the amount of pressure I will put on my kids to perform in certain things. It, 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 that'll never go away. You know, it was a lesson learned in life for me. Um, it was a horrific thing to have to do. And that's the whole spectrum of working with the RNA life. It can be humorous, it can be uh, trivial, some of the rescues, and it can be that serious. It's that sort of commitment you make when you join the RNA life. Yeah, well, you never know when the, when the pager goes off, you, you just don't know what it's going to be. Sea Stories is a 21st century Vox production for East Coast FM. And the programme was produced by Pat Hannan. Find out more information about Sea Stories. Visit our website, seastories.ie, or go to facebook.com forward slash seastoriesireland, or follow us on Twitter at seastoriesirl. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, with funding from the Television Licence Fee.